Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib, and I am once again joined by my co-host, JP Erico. Great to see you, JP. Good to be here. Thank you. So today's topic is one that interests both of us and is very near and dear to my heart personally. For those who know my story a little bit, that I, in my 20s, was uh, pre-diabetic, significantly overweight, had a lot of health struggles that I was personally going through. And diabetes is something that has been a concern in my family for quite some time. Grandparents, parents, it's, it's something that has, has been around, it's been lurking around me for quite some time. And so the concern for me in, with regards to metabolic health has always been a little bit high. And so today, what we're going to discuss is the role of the autonomic nervous system, the role of the vagus nerve, and uses of vagus nerve stimulation in addressing metabolic health, in particular that of type 2 diabetes, and uh, even prediabetes as well, I think would be a really great area to look into because as we were mentioning just a moment ago, JP and I were chatting offline that our, our overall health over the past 15, 20, 25 years in terms of a society has declined significantly. And so we can definitely jump in and tackle a little bit more of the specifics with regards to metabolic health. But uh, JP, why don't you tell the, the story of that TEDx talk that you were just watching? Yeah, there's a TEDx talk uh, with a three-star U.S. Army general who was in charge of the recruiting and the initial training of all of the Army. And what he found in his tenure there was a, a remarkable change just within the last 15 to 20 years where the people who were even signing up for the military, 60% of them on the day that they were signing up were not physically capable of meeting the minimum requirements to be in the army. And that those who did pass the minimum requirements at that point, when they showed up for their first day of basic training, um, the majority of them were incapable, he said, of performing the basic physical training that was required to be able to to start basic training. And that was literally just one minute of push-ups, one minute of sit-ups, and being able to run a mile. It's it's remarkable to think about how uh, in our sedentary lifestyles in the Western world, especially here in the United States, kids, people 18, 20 years old, are incapable of doing such basic physical exercise that 50 years ago would be, you know, a morning of playing for for kids during the summertime. Yeah, it's a little bit scary kind of the situation that we're in. I believe that metabolic health, metabolic health issues are the challenge of our time. I, I truly do believe that. I think the environment that we live in, the sedentary lifestyles that we tend to live and that we unfortunately have been promoted into by use of technology, by the presence of cars being completely accessible and the inability for us to truly be physically capable uh, due to our lack of biochemical uh, optimal function and cellular function is a huge piece of the puzzle. 
it's it's a situation that I've personally felt and experienced. And I still remember to this day, the thing that drives me the, the craziest is when I bend down or when I used to bend down to tie my shoelaces, I used to get winded simply by tying my shoelaces. And now I am capable of riding my bike uh, 85 miles to Niagara Falls from Toronto, where I live. So the the very positive outlook here, the very positive news is that this can be changed. We can positively address this. We can make very positive changes. In fact, just this morning, I biked my daughter to daycare instead of driving her. It depends on us taking the, the initial steps to make ourselves more physically capable. And this is something that we can positively address. So let's dig in today on metabolic health, why it goes the way that it does, why it has become the challenge of our time, and the effects of the autonomic nervous system in regards to actually regulating your metabolism. Yes. And the first thing I always say when I talk about this subject is that, unfortunately, the last remaining bias in or, or prejudice in the world that, that exists, at least for us today, a widespread is this bias against people who are overweight. The assumption that being overweight is the fault of the person, it's something that they do to themselves, and it's just a lack of willpower that, that caused them to, to be that way. I'm not giving anybody a, a hall pass with respect to exercise and other things, because I think those things are really important and people should do them. But we do live in a society where it is increasingly more difficult to get exercise simply by doing the things that you need to do. We don't typically walk to work. We don't typically ride bikes to get from one place to another that are longer distances. We're not outside in fields working, but for the most part. And as a result, exercise is not something that we find we have to do and just do it. It's something that we have to make time to do and making time to do anything in, in today's world is difficult. The second thing I would I, I say is a hall pass is that the dietary intake that we are by and large confronted with today is not the same as what it was 50 years ago or 100 years ago. A lot more processed foods, a lot more foods that have stabilizers and, and frankly, a lot of sugar that's injected into our, our processed foods. So, you know, it's, it's not the fault of the person, but it does take extra effort to, to make certain that you're eating healthy. Whereas it was, I think, a little simpler because it was all that was available 50 years ago. But di diving into why the metabolic health is something that is really important is um, you mentioned metabolic disease being the, sort of the, the issue of our medical issue of our age. And I think that's true. And I think it's, it's a function of the fact that it covers so many different things. It covers obviously obesity, it covers type 2 diabetes, but it also touches on um, heart disease, atherosclerosis. It touches on um, hypertension. Stroke is obviously a consequence of hypertension and cardiovascular uh, disease. And all of these things are a function of what's referred to as meta-inflammation, which is the inflammation, chronic inflammation that occurs simply by being significantly overweight. And I think as we, as we continue this conversation, it's going to be really important to explain how that works, how, what is going on inside the body. But 
I think the most important takeaway for everybody right up front is it is a reversible condition. It is something that you can overcome. Unfortunately, places like the um, diabetes societies, et cetera, that are largely funded, unfortunately, by pharmaceutical companies, they view it as a progressive disease that you never overcome. You will always become more and more insulin dependent. And frankly, the dietary guidelines that they suggest that people use when they're diabetic are actually designed to perpetuate and exacerbate the situation. So I think as we talk about not only the, the metabolic health um, and how the autonomic nervous system can play a role both in exacerbating the disease and making it better, we have to also consider making some, some intelligent choices and not necessarily blindly listening to people who have an agenda. Yeah, that's such an important point here is when, when we are granted information from these nameless, faceless corporations, oftentimes it's, it's with a, a back-end agenda in their mind. And unfortunately, a lot of what's, what's being perpetuated in, in mainstream medicine is not actually doing any good because it is dependent on maintaining the, the ability to send more and more prescriptions to more and more people and maintain the profits of a lot of these companies that are kind of underlying the, the advice that's coming out. It, it all kind of started when fat was vilified, right? We, we started vilifying fat, so we started taking fat out of foods and the food didn't taste great. And so what did they do? They injected sugar into it, right? And the, the carbohydrate levels went up, the processing increased, we started adding more and more seed oils instead of the uh, good quality like animal fats and things like that, that generally are going to be beneficial to us, things that have been around for generations, millennia, in fact, that we've survived very well off of. And only recently have we gone into this state of metabolic disease being such a severe challenge. And so, yeah, the, the environment plays a very important role. And I, I believe, honestly, the idea of convenience is such a terrible and scary kind of piece to this puzzle that a lot of the foods that are provided to us in these convenient moments where we can simply go on our phone, order a massive 3000 calorie meal off of the clicks of our thumb without needing to simply get off the couch, we can have that delivered to us, this convenience mindset, this convenience environment that we live in. Uh, is very metabolically unhealthy and, and creating a lot of these challenges. So I absolutely agree with you on, on what you said there. No question. Let's dive into what happens when you eat one of those 3,000 calorie uh, entrees that you get from, you know, from a fast food restaurant or otherwise. And if you continue to eat that over time, I think we all understand that if you are intaking more calories than you're expending, your body will store those calories. And over time, you will become fatter. Yeah. And there is tissue designed, and it's, it's important tissue. Fat is very important. It's an organ in and of itself. When fat begins to get larger and larger and larger, what is floating around in that tissue becomes a little different from what's normal. And what happens is there are high levels of what are called free fatty acids. And these free fatty acids are part of that in environment. They're, they're being stored, they're being shuttled between cells, 
et cetera, those free fatty acids that are in that tissue are actually immunogenic. And what that word means is that it, it will trigger an inflammatory response. So every cell in your body is equipped with receptors that are designed to measure whether there's been damage or whether there's a pathogen like a bacteria or a virus in the area. And when those receptors are activated, every cell in your body has the ability to send up alarm bells and send out signals uh, of inflammation. The most basic receptors uh, are toll receptors. These are, these are some of the most ancient receptors for the immune system. Every animal and even some plants have them. Um, and toll receptors have the ability to be activated by free fatty acids. So in high enough concentrations, fat is actually an inflammatory trigger. And so what, what happens is that that signal goes out that, hey, there's a problem here, there's either damage or a pathogen, and that recruits into the tissue macrophages. Actually, they, they start out as monocytes floating in circulation, and then when they get, the, they, they sort of smell that signal, they extravasate, which means moving through the, the wall of, of the blood vessel into the tissue. And once they reside there, once they've moved in, reside there, they become macrophages. And macrophages are, are one of the most important innate immune cells in your body. They're, they're sort of the coordinators of the in, inflammatory response. And they start pumping out these, these chemical signals, which are called cytokines. And they begin to amplify the signal that there's, there's a problem. Now, this has many different effects, but let's just talk briefly about what's going on inside that fat tissue. Well, inside that fat tissue, you've got all of these macrophages. And, and, and for people who are morbidly obese and, and have been for an extended period of time, the number of macrophages in that tissue, if you were literally to biopsy that fat tissue and take it out and measure by number, how many of those cells are fat cells versus how many of them are activated immune cells, you will find up to four in 10 or 40% of those cells are actually activated immune cells pumping out cytokines. Now, this is, this is a very, very energy intensive process that macrophages are designed to, to do um, and to undertake. But the, the rest of the tissue, your fat cells and muscle cells in your body, they're not designed to remain in that chronically inflamed state for an extended period of time. And so what happens? Well, if, if it stays in that state, it will run out of energy, it will die. I mean, literally the tissue will die. But the other thing that can happen is that the cell, because the cell doesn't wanna die, will begin producing a set of proteins. And I think we've talked about these proteins briefly before. They're called SOX proteins. Mm -hmm. They're S-O-C-S. Um, and there's, there's several of them, but the two that are most important for this conversation are SOX1 and SOX3, so some pretty important ones. And they're called SOX because it stands for suppressors of cytokine signaling. So they're literally stopping the inflammatory cascade that's happening inside the cell. When these proteins get formed inside the cell, when they start being produced, they have the ability to block the entire inflammatory cascade, but they have another function. And we'll talk about why they have that function in a second. But what they do is they block your cell's ability to listen to insulin. And how does it do that? That those proteins will do something called phosphorylation. They, they will phosphorylate in an alternative way than it's supposed to be. The insulin receptors substrate. 
So the substrate portion of the protein gets phosphorylated in a way that triggers it to be destroyed inside your cell. So basically what it's doing is dismantling from the inside your cell's ability to hear insulin. Now, what's so important about insulin? For most cells in your body, the ability to take up sugar, the glucose that's floating through the bloodstream that every cell needs to survive, you require insulin. Insulin is a hormone that, that's floating through your system. It comes from your pancreas, comes from cells called beta cells in your pancreas. And as it's floating through the system, it gets released when there's food or high levels of glucose in your bloodstream. And what it does is it signals to the cell to begin a process that allows the cell to take up glucose. If the insulin receptor isn't functioning properly, then the cell can no longer take up glucose and it will starve. So one of the things that's happening in this process is not only is, are these SOX proteins shutting down the inflammation, but they're shutting down the cell's ability to take up glucose. And you say to yourself, well, why would it do that? Why would, it, why would this, these proteins want to do that? Well, remember, we didn't evolve as a species in you know, the modern world. We, we evolved in an environment that was quite different. And so you can imagine if you are you know, a caveman roaming around the, the earth you know, 50,000 years ago, and uh, you know, a saber-toothed tiger has attacked you and you've managed to escape, but you're injured and you crawl into a cave, well, you're not going to be eating for a while but your body needs to continue to function. And most importantly, your nerve cells and your, your immune system have to be able to function in order to fight off any bacterial infections that might come from your injuries and actually heal your injuries. And so what happens is in that inflamed environment in where you're, you're injured, what's needed is for your muscle cells and fat cells to stop using up all the energy that it's got, your body has. And now your body has to start creating some energy for itself. And fortunately, we have little oil wells, if you want, or, or you know, solar panels or, or a little nuclear reactor, frankly, inside our body to generate energy. And that is your liver. And so one of the things that happens when you're chronically inflamed is your liver starts to pump out glucose in high quantities. It's a process called gluconeogenesis, neo meaning new and genesis meaning forming. So you're forming new sugars and, and your liver is basically becomes your food source yeah. for the rest of your body. But, but again, you've been injured. You're sitting in a cave. You've been attacked by a saber toothed tiger. You, you don't want your fat cells and muscle cells to be using that up. What you want is your nerve cells and your immune cells to be using that. And fortunately, nerve cells and immune cells don't need insulin in order to take up glucose the same way fat cells and muscle cells do. So it's perfect. Mother Nature is a genius. She yeah. figured out that the best way to solve this problem is block the inflammation that's going to damage the muscle and fat cells, block their ability to take up insulin, effectively put them to sleep for a little while, and allow all that glucose that's being produced by your liver to be used by your nerve cells to keep you alive and your immune cells to help you recover from your injuries. It's a beautiful system. It is. The problem is in, in the modern world, it gets corrupted. And so we got to figure out how we can maybe work with the system, understand it, and then make things better. I love the way that you said that because we, we need to realize, and I don't think enough people understand this, but the body doesn't make mistakes, right? Like 
the body has created processes, biochemical cascades, very specifically to focus on homeostasis, to create a balance of function within the body. When there is stress or injury or trauma or something that takes us out of that state of homeostasis, all of the cascades, all of the functions are meant to help bring you back into that state of balance and to maintain that state of homeostasis or at least try to bring you closer towards it. And you, you stated it exactly right. A lot of these systems have become corrupted based on the lifestyle that we are currently living. And you mentioned muscle cells, you mentioned fat cells and liver cells being really important in this whole cascade. Let's talk a little bit about insulin first with regards to how insulin functions, which cells require insulin. I, I want to kind of dig in there a little bit. And uh, I want to talk about muscle because that's a really important one. But let's, let's start with insulin. Sure. So insulin is produced in your pancreas. The number of cells in your body that produce it is, is tiny. It's something like two grams. It's the size of a couple of, uh, of peanuts. And they sit inside your pancreas and they, they are signaled to produce insulin, actually in a very interesting way. They're, they're called beta cells or Isle of Langerhans cells. Uh, those beta cells are uh, sitting next to alpha cells. And alpha cells, one of the ways that alpha cells trigger the beta cells to start producing insulin is by releasing a, a neurotransmitter to them, uh, a neurotransmitter, the acetylcholine, uh, which we've talked about before, which is the parasympathetic neurotransmitter. It's, a, it's the neurotransmitter associated with the vagus nerve and with the parasympathetic side of, of, of the autonomic nervous system. So when you start eating, even before the, the food leaves your mouth, there are signals, neurologic signals, that, that tell your brain and then tell your body to start producing insulin in order to manage the incoming sugar that's going to be uh, coming into the system. Because what you, what you don't want is to have lots and lots of sugar floating around in your bloodstream for a prolonged period of time. So insulin is used to help to trigger your fat cells and muscle cells and other cells in your body to take up that glucose, to, to absorb it into your system quickly, uh, into your cells quickly, because you don't want it floating around in the bloodstream. Let's spend two seconds talking about what happens if you do have elevated levels of sugar for prolonged periods of time in your bloodstream. Well, sugar is sticky. We all know that, right? Although I mean it at, at, the, at the chemical level, not at, at, at sort of a macroscopic sticky candy kind of way. But what happens is proteins, really important proteins in your bloodstream that are floating around that need to be there for a long period of time, when they're in a sugary environment, an environment that has high levels of glucose floating around there, will become stuck to the, to the sugar. And you'll end up with a certain percentage of that protein structure really just being sugars that are attached to the surface. And we can measure how severe that is. We've learned how to do that by looking at a protein that floats around in our bloodstream. We're all familiar with it. It carries oxygen. It's our hemoglobin. And so hemoglobin on red blood cells can get sticky and get stuck with too much sugar. And we measure that as a percentage of the hemoglobin that have reached a point of being too sticky to function properly. And that, not surprisingly, it's called HbA1c. I think everybody talks about A1c levels 
what we're talking about is the percentage of the hemoglobin in your bloodstream that has been glycosylated that and has has glucose has become sugarized if you will and if that percentage gets above 7 we say that a person has type 2 diabetes when they're above 6 or in the high fives into the sixes we say they're pre-diabetic they're on the way and we need to start to do something about that so you say well could i just cut out eating sugar would that would that do it well no because sugar is the currency of our metabolism and so if you're not eating it it's being converted into it in your body either through your digestive system or more importantly in your liver and and the liver produces it or converts it uh, so that it's available for your cells even if you've eaten properly and you've cut out sugars and cut out carbohydrates there's still a level to which if there's inflammation that inflammation that we talked about before if that's in the system it will drive your body in your brain because again it's thinking it's thinking still in the cave it's saying i'm not going to eat right now but my immune cells and my my brain cells and my nerve cells need that glucose so your liver starts producing too much glucose and it does it all the time so that glucose isn't going up and down when you're eating it's a high level of glucose all the time because it thinks you're not consciously, but subconsciously, and your body thinks it needs it. Your immune system is saying, I need this to battle this chronic, severe inflammation that's really coming from your white adipose tissue. I think the liver is completely overlooked when it comes to how it functions in this metabolic situation uh, by a lot of practitioners out there. And, and the importance of liver function is, uh, it can't be understated here. The other thing that's really important to note is you mentioned with regards to the pancreas, getting those signals from uh, taste buds, from, in fact, we, we take in food, even from the smell of food, even before we've even taken a bite, we've already started that digestive process. And the signaling of what's going on, what's going on through the glossopharyngeal nerve, through the nerves that get signals through the taste buds, through the olfactory senses, that all goes to the brainstem goes through fun little cascades all over the place. We don't need to get into the specifics, but the signal to the pancreas is actually sent through the vagus nerve to the pancreas, to the alpha cells saying, hey, let's get the beta cells up and running because we need insulin because we're sensing that there's some sugar. We're sensing there's some sweetness, some carbohydrate that's coming in. If we don't have enough insulin, that blood sugar level is gonna stay too high for too long. And so the insulin levels go up and we start to produce more and more of it. And so this is an important piece to that puzzle. The, the signal to those organs below, again, comes through with the vagus nerve. So important to keep in mind. Yeah, and actually there's, um, just to follow on that, we've talked in the past about the fact that all of your organs function in, in a symphony. Um, and you know, it's not like you can have your, your heart in a, in a mile race and your lungs in, you know, in sleep mode and your stomach in eat mode. It has to work together. And so the vagus nerve is part of that, is really the conductor of that whole process along with your brain. But getting specifically to the metabolism, you know, when, you're, when you eat something sugary and there's high levels of sugar in your bloodstream, your liver, um, it's actually right next to your, inside your portal vein, it's measuring levels of sugar and it's sending information both into the liver as well as to the pancreas. So what happens is you have this, this process 
in a normal healthy person where they've eaten something that has sugar in it or is has carbohydrates or otherwise, where there's going to be this spike in sugar flowing through the bloodstream, your pancreas gets the message from your alpha cells as well as from the vagus nerve to start producing insulin. So the beta cells start producing insulin. But the other thing that starts happening is in the liver, in a healthy liver, there's something called glycogen synthetase. So one of the things that your liver is, is doing, it's not only producing sugar, but it's also storing sugar in the form of glycogen. I know, I know we all think about sugar and sugary sweets making you fat because they, the, you know, we think of, of sugar as being stored in fat cells, but, but actually a vast amount of sugar um, that's eaten is actually converted into glycogen, which is a, a form of sort of energy storage. Think of them as like little buckets of gasoline, if you will, or, or cans of uh, gasoline, and they're stored in, in your liver and in your muscle cells. And so there's this level to which glycogen is then available in when you haven't eaten, if you decide to exert yourself significantly and want to go on a, a marathon run. Uh, so our bodies are, are structured this way, but it, there was a, some research done in the early 1960s in Japan by a, a wonderful researcher by the name of Shimazu, who looked at what would happen if he artificially stimulated the vagus nerve with respect to insulin production and glycogen synthetase activation, activating that process of making glycogen. And what he found was that actually stimulating the vagus nerve forced the liver into that glycogen synthesis process 10 times faster than directly injecting insulin. So it was a remarkably rapid process that could function. Now, one could say, could that be harnessed for some reason uh, or some way? And I think, I think the answer is yes, but, but we'll get into it uh, in a little bit as to how uh, vagus nerve stimulation can be used to assist in regulating and sort of bringing back to homeostasis and out of that constant gluconeogenesis mode that is associated with type 2 diabetes. Yeah, I'm glad you bring up the glycogen piece to begin with and the glycogen synthase piece right there. And vagus nerve stimulation, being able to, to rapidly produce an upregulation in glycogen synthase activity is, is obviously quite important. And glycogen is, is storage of that sugar for uh, use by muscles and other cells in a rapid setting when we need it immediately, which is really important because it's kind of a short-term fuel, right? Carbs are carbs are, are a quick fuel that may not be the most efficient, but it's certainly the easiest one for our cells to use. You can almost think of carbs and fats as being the two types of fuel sources that our body, uh, that our cells can use to create energy within our body. In, in the most cruelest or kind of basic sense that carbs are like uh, regular ethanol 85 fuel and fats are like jet fuel. And so both are quite effective, but you need to have the right machinery turned on to use each one. And one is going to create a little bit more waste, which is the carbohydrate side. And the other side is the fat side, but you can't just run on jet fuel all the time either. We need to have a balance between the two. And that's where dietary things can come in. And before we get into how those are used and what's going on from a carbs and fats perspective, let's talk a little bit about how insulin signals to all of our cells 
using insulin receptors and which cells require that insulin input to take the glucose in into those cells. Sure. And, and actually, I want to riff just briefly on what you just said. If you break it down to its most fundamental pieces, food that we take in really has only three categories that they can fit in. It, it can either be a fat, it can be a carbohydrate, or it can be a protein. When you eat protein, let's say you just have a pure protein diet, there is some level to which insulin levels will spike after the intake. Yeah. Um, but by and large, proteins are easier to utilize for construction purposes. I mean, it, it's broken down to its amino acids, and then it's used to make all sorts of different proteins and, and structures in your body. Carbohydrates are actually not essential. You can have and thrive as a, as a, as a person for your whole life and never eat a carbohydrate. What are essential are those uh, essential amino acids that are in, in the proteins. People don't really talk about fats, but but one of the things that carbohydrates will do, carbohydrates are incredibly immunogenic. When you eat them, your immune system is activated. In fact, we, we certainly know that some people have a gluten allergy um, and that's, that, that's a protein, but, but there's also carbohydrate allergies and your body really feels sluggish and your immune system is active when you eat carbohydrates. None of that happens when you eat fats. Fats do not trigger a large insulin um, injection into your bloodstream, and it also doesn't uh, typically cause an inflammatory response. So fats are actually quite healthy to eat. Um, it's, it's actually, and it's actually the most concentrated energy. If you look at the amount of calories per gram, fats have the most calories, they're the least immunogenic, and they cause the least increase and in fluctuation in your insulin levels. What you asked was, you know, what happens when uh, insulin is is injected into the system? There's really a variety of things. We talked about a little bit about what happens in the liver. We talked a little bit about what happens in muscle cells and fat cells. There's a need for insulin in order to be able to take up glucose. But we also talked about what happens when there's a lot of fat that's causing a, a chronic inflammation that the muscle and fat cells will become insulin resistant. They'll stop being able to listen for that insulin signal. But your body doesn't quit. Your, your pancreas starts to push out more and more and more insulin. Now, insulin you know, will for a while be able to push more sugar into those cells from your bloodstream. But at some point, your cells become really sort of insulin blind, if you will, insulin deaf, they're not hearing that signal. And at the same time, those cells in your pancreas that are producing the insulin, not a lot of cells, as I said, it's only about the size of a peanut, you know, or two, and they get burned out. And over time, if you live in that, that sort of chronic state of inflammation, you can become uh, what's referred to as insulin dependent. And, and, and that doesn't mean that you're that your cells need insulin because they do all the time. We're all insulin dependent. But what it means is that you're not producing enough or any insulin anymore yourself. And it, you can die without that. And so um, you start to become dependent on companies that make insulin so that you can inject yourself so that you can actually be able to eat and, and get the nutrients out of, your, out of the food and, and be able to have your muscle and fat cells work. But one last thing about insulin, because whether you're, you're making it or you're injecting it. Insulin is required for 
taking up that sugar. But the sugar gets out of your bloodstream quickly and the insulin stays around. And insulin makes you feel very sluggish. Insulin can actually, I mean, there, there are people who, if they take too much insulin, can actually go into a coma. So it, it makes you feel tired. It makes you feel fatigued. It makes you feel down. And it takes a little while for that insulin to clear out of your system. So the, the half-life is actually quite a, lot, quite a bit longer than a spike of sugar. That's why a lot of these people who take these, these shots of you know, energy drinks, they, they have that, that sudden rush of energy. But if there isn't something else other than sugar in it, they'll have a sugar crash. Yeah. Um, and so what's happening is in people who have, you know, who have type 2 diabetes who are, or are pre-diabetic, they're having this constant flush or constant push of insulin into their bloodstream at higher levels than, than are appropriate. And they end up feeling sluggish. So it's this vicious cycle of I'm overweight. My pancreas is producing too much insulin. I'm pushing too much sugar into my, into my muscle cells and fat cells, or I'm not pushing enough. So I end up with my liver functioning over producing too much sugar too much glucose. And I feel sluggish. I don't want to exercise. I don't want to lose the weight. So it's a, it's, it's really important. And I think this is a good segue into how the autonomic nervous system can be maybe hijacked a little bit so that it will function in a, in a better way for us. There's got to be a better way to shut down that inflammation that's going on in the bloodstream and in our, in, in your body and your muscle cells and fat cells so that you don't have to rely on all of this inflammatory consequences to survive. Yeah, I, I love that. I have a great little analogy when it comes to understanding insulin and glucose, how it functions, just as a basic for those who uh, want a little refresher here. So think of it in the terms of you live in your house and every house on your block is a cell and the door is the insulin receptor, okay? Now, when people come by and ring the doorbell, you go and answer the door. And you're going to answer the door as when, when you're in a healthy state, uh, because the doorbell isn't being rung four or five, six times a day, you don't have a problem going to the door and answering it and, and collecting whatever it is that you're, you need to get from the front door or receiving whoever it is. When the doorbell starts to get rung, six, seven, eight, nine times a day, you start to become a little bit tired of it. And you stop going and answering the door on the fourth, fifth, and sixth. You become more resistant to the doorbell. You actually start to become a little bit more flush or don't want to go and answer the door. And you, you decide that you're resistant to opening the door on the eighth, ninth, and tenth doorbell ring that occurs. This is what happens with insulin resistance. When our cells have insulin levels that are too high in the bloodstream that are constantly being pumped to our insulin re uh, receptors on the cell surface, the cells are saying, I don't want to answer this. I don't need any more glucose. I have enough energy to function. I don't want to receive any more insulin signaling. So I'm not going to answer the door. In fact, I'm going to downregulate my doorbell, I'm actually going to unplug the doorbell for the rest of the day. And I'm not going to listen to the doorbell anymore. And so the doorbell might get rung, but you're not answering anymore. And that's where the resistance piece of insulin resistance comes in because the cells are no longer answering, but the insulin level goes up. 
And the body's response is send more insulin because the blood sugar level is too high. It says, keep going, keep going. So more and more people are coming to ring your doorbell to tell you, hey, something's up, something's up. But you don't want to listen anymore. So this is kind of that cascade of what's happening internally at every single cell within our body, especially the fat cells and muscle cells that say, if, if we have too much carb or sugar or whatever is required for energy production purposes stored, and we're not utilizing it well enough, then we're not going to go answer the door. And that's basically what insulin resistance is at the cellular level. Yeah. And I think that just to riff on that, that analogy, if somebody's trying to get you some information and you're not answering the door, they're going to come back repeatedly. And so part of what's going on is the immune system is signaling to the liver saying, hey, there's a lot of inflammation going on here. There's a lot of problems here. You got to pump out a lot of glucose. And so your liver is, is continuing to punch out more and more glucose that needs to be absorbed. And actually, one of the things that occurs at some point, your body ceases to rely solely on the absorption of that glucose out of the bloodstream by muscle cells, fat cells, and, and other cells. It starts to rely on your kidneys to filter out sugar. And so one of the telltale signs of diabetes is having high levels of sugar in your urine. Um, so that's another, another thing that we're seeing out there is higher levels of sugar in urine as we see more and more type 2 diabetes. That's exactly um, yeah. why it's actually called diabetes mellitus because it was found with people that have sweet smelling urine as having uh, diabetes mellitus, mellitus meaning sweet or sugary kind of thought process there. Absolutely, the correct. You know, it's, it's probably a good time to, to make a, a parallel to something we talked about on one of the earlier episodes. Um, we had the opportunity to talk about thinking about the brain as not necessarily the, the center of the central nervous system, but the brain as an immune organ, and that the brain's function as really being part of the immune system's third arm, if you will. We talked about the adaptive immune system being sort of the older brother or the, or the newer version of uh, the innate immune system. So you have, I think everybody at this point, if they've listened to our broadcast, or frankly, if they've, if they've been listening to what's gone on in the, in the world with COVID, et cetera, we know that the innate immune system is how we deal with new things. The adaptive immune system is how we deal with things we've seen before. But in both cases, our bodies have to interact with that thing. The, the idea is that the brain, which is comprised at least 10 to 15% of the brain, is actually comprised of immune cells, um, and they're critically important. And we'll talk in the future episodes about how critically important those functions are um, in some things that we never even thought before might be associated with the immune system, but that the brain's function is to prevent us from ever getting into a dangerous situation where we've actually come in contact with a pathogen or experienced damage. It's sort of our proactive immune system. But we can also think in the, in the framework of the metabolic disorders of the liver as being an immune organ. And in fact, there are immune cells that are resident in the liver that are similar to macrophages. They're the macrophages of the liver. They're called Kupfer cells. And Kupfer cells are orchestrating a lot of this during inflammatory situations where, or in, in obesity where you've got a sort of a chronic inflammatory trigger. The Kupfer cells are actually coordinating and conducting this 
upregulation of gluconeogenesis. And another thing that they do during the, that time is not just gluconeogenesis, but liponeogenesis. So you end up with, you know, with, with lipids or fats being actually made in the liver, produced in the liver, being taken up by the fat tissue, brought into circulation and brought to the liver and because it's the fuel, if you will, for making glucose. And so you end up with something called fatty liver disease, where your liver is just literally encased in fat. And it ends up leading to fibrosis, where the liver ceases to be this sort of very flexible and supple organ into something that's fibrotic and sort of stiff. And then beyond that, you actually get cirrhosis of the liver, which can lead to liver death. And then ultimately, you have to you can't survive without a liver, and you end up being a liver transplant. In fact, um, cirrhosis of the liver used to be something that was typically associated with either alcoholics, severe alcoholics, you know, bums and winos on the street kind of things who've been who've been you know inebriated for decades. Um, that that will do damage to the liver. And the other was either through hepatitis or or through drug use, IV drug use, or something like that, or some sort of infection. What we're finding now is that the leading cause of cirrhosis of the liver, I mean, this is, the, this is life and death stuff here, you know, the, that the leading cause is this fatty liver problem, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Um, this is a form of liver disease that is becoming catastrophically important in, in, in modern society. We're talking about something like 30 to 40% of the people out there have some level of what's called NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And, and if it gets to the point where it's NASH, which is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, you're on the pathway to needing a liver transplant or possible cirrhosis of the liver and death. Yeah. Um, so the liver is a critically important part of this equation. It's, it's really one of the drivers of type 2 diabetes. It's part of this this fatty liver disease problem. And it's an immune organ. It has a lot of immune functions. If you think about what the liver's function is, even beyond this situation, what the liver does is it filters out and breaks down toxins. So one of the functions of the immune system to protect you is to protect you against toxins. Everything you eat, everything that you come in contact with that's not you at some level is going to get filtered. Even medicines that you take end up going through the liver. And there's a whole process, which we won't go into now, the, the cytochrome P450 cascade, et cetera, that breaks these things down. It's all part of an immune function, a protective function. And so the liver and, and coordinating how the liver functions, which is part of your autonomic nervous system, is a really important pathway for controlling metabolic disease. And this is why I feel like the liver is completely overlooked when it comes to a lot of these types of conditions. And so I'm, I'm very glad that we were able to kind of dig in there. I'm hearing more and more, and it's kind of sticking with me more and more, uh, the importance of the immune system in every single organ. And the fact that we've got these different types of immune cells that are present in almost every single organ in our body. We've got the microglia within our brain and the astrocytes. We've got the macrophages in our gut, in the gut lining. We've got the monocytes in the bloodstream. We've got the Kupfer cells in the liver. Every organ has kind of uh, emerging an important role for the immune system to play in its optimal function. And so we're hearing more and more about how the immune system needs to be functioning at a very high level. 
and not have a, a constant chronic inflammatory cascade that's kind of creating challenges for it to function at an optimal level. And the vagus nerve and the autonomic nervous system play a, a crucial, crucial role in ensuring that that cascade and that inflammation can be kind of limited and can be functioned or, or brought to a, a point of, of optimal function. So this is a, just an important thing that kind of stuck in my mind as we were talking about this. When you mentioned the cuff cells, I said, oh yeah, this is another area that we need to kind of look at. And, and so the importance of balancing the immune system is going to address every single organ and every single system within the entire body. Yes. And, and we've talked in, the, in prior podcasts, and we'll review it again right now, um, the fact that there are ways in which the brain and the autonomic nervous system sort of conduct this symphony. Everything has to sort of function uh, together. And, and one of the very first pathways of, of the immune reflex that was described was described by Kevin Tracy. We talked about him on an earlier episode, and he he's the person who coined the term the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. And in his pathway, what he described was that the vagus nerve, um, and it also involves the sympathetic uh, nervous system as well, working in conjunction with one another, that they send signals into the spleen. Now, the spleen is fundamentally an immune organ. I mean, something like 70% of the cells in there are either macrophages for the spleen or circulating monocytes that are uh, passing through the spleen and staying there and then being, being ejected into the bloodstream to, to migrate to other tissues. So the spleen is, is definitely an immune organ. And so the, it was not surprising that his first pathway that he discovered was going to involve the spleen. But the idea is that when the vagus nerve is activated, either naturally by experiencing um, and sensing high levels of inflammation in the system and wanting to tamp it down, or simply because it's been stimulated through exercise, et cetera, to you know, function in a homeostatic way, what happens is it sends messages to the spleen in the form of neurotransmitters, which then uh, result in the release of acetylcholine, that parasympathetic uh, neurotransmitter that we talked about. And it binds to a specific receptor, an alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, so acetylcholine binds to it. It happens to be this specific form, the alpha-7, which triggers a cascade within the cell to shut down inflammation. And remember, we talked about how muscle cells and fat cells need a way to shut down that inflammation because chronic inflammation could actually lead to exhaustion and death for those cells. So internally, those cells are producing SOX proteins to shut down the inflammation. The issue is that it also makes you insulin resistant. If there would be a way to shut down that inflammation intracellularly so that we could block that, but, but through a different means to block that inflammation in a way that didn't make you insulin resistant, that would be a preferable way to do it. And so what, what Kevin Tracy's pioneering work showed is that the vagus nerve can be involved in a way to tamp down inflammation. And he looked at it through the spleen. Other people have said, well, maybe there are parallel pathways that work in other organs that, that maybe aren't so quite so systemic, but are at least narrowly focused and narrowly active in those specific organs. And so we talked also about how that goes on in the brain um, and that they're the microglial cells, which are the parallel to macrophages, 
in the brain have these alpha-7 receptors. They respond to the release of acetylcholine. Not surprisingly, that release of acetylcholine can be caused by stimulation of the vagus nerve. You can reduce inflammation not only in your body and your spleen, but also in your brain through this pathway. There's another pathway that's been identified, which is in the gut. And so if you activate the vagus nerve, you see the release of acetylcholine in the endothelial lining of the gut, which has got lots and lots of different immune cells. And we can actually change the, the constitution of that. Is it more inflammatory TH17 cells, or is it more T-regulatory cells, which tend to reduce inflammation? Well, stimulation of the vagus nerve causes more Treg cells to be created. That pathway was, uh, was written about and I, I believe discovered by uh, Dr. Musita. There are other people who are looking now at whether or not there's additional pathways, for example, in the liver, because you've got these Kupfer cells that are orchestrating a big portion of this whole metabolic disease issue. And, and, and not just the disease, but metabolic function, proper metabolic function. There are other people who are looking at the white adipose tissue. Remember earlier I, I mentioned that, that fat is actually an organ? Well, it's, it's not just sort of passively storing energy. It has a whole slew of chemicals that are associated messengers, much the same way the immune system uses uh, cytokines and the nervous system uses neurotransmitters. Fat cells have their own adipokines. These are, are, are messengers that go back and forth within the fat tissue and communicate. Well, alongside those are those, those macrophages that are embedded in the tissue. And the belief is that vagus nerve stimulation may alter the expression of some of those really important adipokines and cytokines right there in the fat tissue to literally stop the fat tissue from being considered immunogenic and, and inflammatory. So the vagus nerve plays such an incredibly important role to tamp down inflammation, not just through the spleen, not just in the brain, not just in the gut, but probably in every organ, that every organ in your body has some level to which you can regulate inflammation and as a result, reduce the, the diseases or conditions that are associated with that organ simply by stimulating the vagus nerve and accessing that organ's equivalent of the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway. Yeah, it, this receptor, the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor is really, I think, the key to a lot of these systems being regulated through the vagus nerve. Kupfer cells have alpha-7 alpha nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on them. The microglial macrophage, as we know, have the same receptors. This receptor is key to creating that anti-inflammatory cascade or putting the brakes on that inflammatory cascade that's going to trigger a lot of the cytokine activity and, and trigger the, the inflammatory chronic issues that, that a lot of people are experiencing. Uh, so that, that receptor is absolutely key to ensuring that this entire system functions and that we can get into that homeostatic balance state. So, so important. Yeah, if you think about it, Think back to that 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 so unfortunate caveman who was um, attacked by the uh, saber toothed tiger and is now you know trying to heal himself up inside a cave. He's going to be very agitated. He's going to be very very stressed by by his situation, worried about whether he's going to survive the accident or, or the uh, the attack or whether he's going to survive starvation. So very sympathetically overdriven. 
one of the things that the vagus nerve will do is sort of instill more calmness. It's the rest, digest, and restore or recover mode. And so it needs to send that message to every cell and every organ so all of your body can function in a harmonious way to recover. And so it's going to do that in the gut. It's going to do that in the brain. It's going to do that in the liver. It's going to do that in the, in the white adipose tissue. It's going to do that in every, every cell in your body. It's, it's the way, you know, we talk about the vagus nerve and parasympathetic mode as being the rest, digest, and restore mode. But the signaling, the way it signals to th that your brain coordinates that is through the vagus nerve and the release of acetylcholine and this this alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have a chance in a later episode to talk about this also, but even platelets yeah. in circulation have on them this same alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, and your brain can literally control what, how primed you are to heal and to clot. Literally, it's, it sounds crazy, but when you're stressed, and when you're in sympathetic overdrive, you will bleed more than if you're in a rest and digest mode because your platelets literally function better, more efficiently, more quickly to heal when you're in that rest, digest, and heal mode. Yeah. Such an important and, and profound kind of understanding of how the system works and understanding why parasympathetic and sympathetic balance is so important, why we can't be in one of those systems for too long uh, on, on either side of that, either side of that issue or, or having one system on, on overdrive versus the other. You mentioned starvation and I wanna talk a little bit about fasting and a little bit about these situations where there's no food. Either can we use it therapeutically? Is it something that can be beneficial in certain times? Let's talk a little bit about these scenarios where there is no food and the liver needs to do its work. So short-term stress, is a good thing. I don't. I don't want people to take uh, this everything we're talking about about long-term chronic stress, chronic inflammation being bad to mean that any inflammation is bad or any stress is bad. That's not true. In fact, you need a balance. You need some. You know. Listen, being involved in a race or uh, a game or or something where you're vigorous for a short period of time. You know, maybe an hour or two or three. Or if you're a marathon runner, five, four or five. You know that that. That level of exercise, that level is good. It actually is cleansing to the system. Um, one of the things it will do is clear out some of that excess fat, some of that excess glycogen that's been stored for an extended period of time. It allows your liver to, to move from one mode to another. You have to exercise. You have to sort of stress your system a little bit. Stress is a good thing. We talk about that even in bone healing. We talk about the fact that you know a, a bones heal better when they're under some level of stress. If you, if you have your, your leg that's broken, they want you to get up and put some, some pressure on it pretty quickly because if not, it will atrophy away. We know that of our muscles. You know, if you're in space and you're, you're in a weightless environment, one of the biggest problems they see uh, for people who are in extended periods in space is their muscle atrophy, even bones atrophy. People who stay on the space station for six months may come back and have up to 30% of their bone mass has atrophied away. <laughs> you know, the, the people come down from the space station, they have to be picked up and like 
held on, you know, held in a wheelchair because they can't function properly. So our liver has to function on both sides. It has to be exercised a little bit. You know, I'm not suggesting, you know, go out and get drunk and exercise it, but I am suggesting that, you know, starvation for a short period of time, you know, fasting for a day isn't a bad thing. It's actually kind of a good thing. We've talked about intermittent fasting, intermittent, or the number of meals that you need to eat. It's good to have small little meals throughout the day, but then there's there's time to maybe go without food for, uh, for a day and see how you feel. Yeah, absolutely. What we want to create is, uh, we, we've kind of mentioned this before, but a hermetic stress, right? Where it's it's stressing, but to a point of building, not to a point of breaking down to a point of, of allowing for that creation to occur. And it really goes to show how adaptive our bodies are to the situation that they're in. When you mentioned the astronauts at the space station, right? When they're living in space without gravitational forces, holding them in, in a certain balance, it goes to show that maybe we have the bone mass and the muscle mass that we have simply because we are on earth with the gravitational forces that we are experiencing here to that extent our body is adapting so well and and in a short term three to six months that these astronauts are experiencing bone loss and muscle loss and changes to so many other systems within their bodies our bodies are adapting to the environment that they're experiencing so it's so so important to to talk about that ability to be good when we're under that stress. And so with, let's say, for example, fasting, right? Fasting in short terms has been shown to be very, very beneficial for longevity purposes and for inflammatory control purposes. It's been really well studied when it comes to metabolic conditions as well in being able to say for a period of time, let's go without. And it doesn't need to be 72 hours or 21 days, like some of the people out there are doing, it, it needs to be short term and kind of regular intervals that are occurring that can help create positive change. So the idea behind intermittent fasting, there's multiple different types that we can do, where it's alternate day fasting, where it's intermittent, where you're essentially doing like a time restricted feeding window, where you allow for food to come in uh, for about an eight hour window or a six hour window per day. And outside of that, it's just water and, and intake of, of fluids primarily and electrolytes that are not going to spike your blood sugar. There's the idea of once a week doing a 24 hour fast, which for a lot of people in, in, in a longevity kind of scenario can be really beneficial, especially if you've just had a weekend of not being the best that you could possibly be. And you're, you're kind of engaging socially with a lot of the people that are out there and you know that you weren't feeling so hot. So fasting maybe the day after can be really beneficial as kind of a reset to the system or giving yourself a break of a certain period of time can be really beneficial. It's actually why we do really well when we don't eat too close to bedtime and we don't eat first thing right away in the morning. Allowing for that window of fasting to be a little bit longer has been really beneficially shown in the literature with regards to metabolic health. Yeah, little, little stresses, or even sometimes not so little, but, but, but brief stresses are, are quite beneficial. And I'll give you another example. We talked about the bone healing, or uh, bone loss, bone healing, muscle atrophy, talked about fasting. The immune system itself, needs to be stressed. Um, there was a very interesting study, uh, a, a group of researchers decided to interview 
people who had made it to 100 years. You know, obviously being 100 years is sort of still the, the sort of the benchmark, the hurdle for, for being really healthy and, and being, you know, having made it the distance, you know, if you will. And what they found was one really important common feature across these people was the fact that they didn't wash their food. They weren't fastidious about cleanliness. And you think to yourself, wow, people who are unclean are lasting longer. Well, the funny thing is, it's because they are intermittently stressing their immune system. And, and take that one step further on the other side. What happens in the modern, in the modern Western world that's different from what we you know, call the third world, you know, the, the less developed you know, countries? Well, there's a lot more hygiene. We've, we've, we've eliminated. When was the last time you heard about a person having a parasitic infection? We've eliminated parasites almost entirely from the Western world. We still get, you know, we still get viruses. We still get bacterial infections, but we don't get parasitic infections. They get those parasitic infections outside the United States. That's why drugs like ivermectin are used throughout Africa, throughout Central Asia, throughout South Asia. It's, it's everywhere. It's used all the time because they experience parasitic infections. Well, one of the things that, that researchers in immunology have linked is the lack of parasitic infections, the lack of sort of eating dirty food, cleaning your carrots and peeling your carrots, not just washing them, but peeling them so that there's no chance that you can encounter even one speck of dirt. What is happening is we're becoming more allergic. Yeah. We're having more allergies. We experience you know, everything from hay fever to anaphylactic reactions, far greater in modern Western society than exists in those, you know, what we're going to call sort of the unclean, but I'm going to call the healthier. They're healthier because they are exposing themselves to that. They're exposing their immune systems to challenges of all types. Um, in fact, there's a type of not necessarily in vogue right now as much in the Western world, but it used to be something called helminthic therapy. Helminthic therapy was actually giving yourself a parasite that can't reproduce inside your body. So it was sort of a safe version, if you will. You, you would ingest these parasites, if you will, that couldn't reproduce, but would trigger the immune response. And so that your immune system sort of practice on that. It's not done in the, in, in the United States. I think the only place I've, I've recently seen that it's still done is in Germany. But helminthic therapy is, is something that very well could be a good treatment for sort of a failing immune system, an immune system that hasn't developed properly because it was never tested properly. And so it's just another way in which it's not always bad to have a little stress. It's not always bad. Now, obviously, we don't want to be in a chronic state of stress but we don't want to be in a chronic state of inflammation because of all the negative consequences and all the negative things that we'll do. We've spent a lot of today talking about the metabolic challenges. There are other challenges in your central nervous system. There are challenges in your cardiovascular system. There are challenges literally in almost every organ in your body to chronic inflammation that, that have negative consequences, even cancers that are associated with chronic inflammation. So don't want to eliminate it all the way, we don't want to live in a constant state of it. What we want is a balance. Yes. What we want is homeostasis. We want a little bit of everything, everything in moderation. And 
one of the things that that we don't have in Western society, and we talked about this on our very first podcast together, is we don't have a lot of balance in modern society. We have a lot of sympathetic overdrive. We have a lot of inflammatory, pro-inflammatory triggers, not enough anti-inflammatory, stress-free or low-stress triggers in our lives. And you know, there's lots of ways to do it. There's lots of ways to activate that parasympathetic nervous system, activate vagal tone. There's, there's ways to do it that are ancient, you know, things like prana breathing techniques that are associated with, you know, the India yoga uh, techniques. You have exercise, you have chanting, Gregorian chants, you have gargling, you have, you know, things like that. But then we also have technologies that we've developed both chemical, you know, there's chemical pills that you can take, believe it or not, that are activating of the vagus nerve. In fact, I realize that I'm, I'm certainly not promoting smoking here, but remember that that receptor that we're talking about is the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. That receptor responds to both acetylcholine or choline, but it also responds to nicotine. So we have receptors in our body frankly, everywhere that respond to nicotine. So, so why do they give the condemned man who's standing before, you know, with a blindfold on, a, you know, with about to be in front of the firing squad, why do we give him a cigarette? Because cigarettes actually do calm you. Down. Calm you. Yeah. There are actually autoimmune diseases. We'll have a chance when we talk about autoimmune diseases to discuss this also. But nicotine Believe it or not, I mean, I'm, not, I'm certainly not promoting smoking. I want to say that again. I'm not promoting smoking. However, one of the things that nicotine can do and nicotine users do, they don't get certain inflammatory bowel disease. There are certain inflammatory bowel disease that are it's literally just not something that smokers ever get. Um, again, not suggesting that if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you start smoking. But there are other ways to do it that are far more healthy that will activate this anti-inflammatory pathway. One of them is, is, is exercise. Another is electrical stimulation. You can access the vagus nerve externally through your ear, on your neck. There are implants that access it in your neck and in your abdomen. Um, not suggesting people go out and have surgery, but there's lots of different technologies and techniques for accessing the vagus nerve. And in all cases, it appears to be virtually without, without side effects other than positive benefits. I want to talk a little bit before we end uh, with regards to just finishing off on the metabolic health piece mm -hmm. uh, with regards to GLP-1 and uh, glucagon-like peptide 1 that is signaled in the gut via the vagus nerve up to the brain uh, with regards to satiety and how it affects uh, metabolic function. So this is an important molecule. This GLP-1 molecule is really, really important. Our satiety reflex is simply built on that. And that essentially means that when we don't have enough GLP-1 production or signaling occurring at the gut level, then up through uh, a good, strong functioning vagus nerve with good vagal tone, then we're not going to get a signal of satiety up to the brain effectively. And that is going to create a challenge of overeating because we tend to just keep saying we're not full. And when we're not feeling satiated, the desire for more and more nutrient intake or caloric intake in, in 
unfortunately, in current times, is going to be higher. And when we have that higher caloric intake, it's going to lead to a, a lot of these metabolic conditions that we spoke about, the obesity, the type 2 diabetes, the hypertension, etc. So it let's reminds me of a really funny story. I'm just sitting here laughing because I'm thinking back to when I was uh, a college student, I went to MIT and um, MIT has a close relationship, a competitive relationship, but a close relationship with Harvard and with Wellesley College. And I remember uh, some friends of mine who were at Wellesley College uh, referred to the period after classes ended, but before final exams, it was referred to as reading period. That was the point at which you were supposed to be studying, reading period. But they referred to it as feeding period because they found that they were eating all the time because they were under stress. It's, it's the equivalent of stress eating. But the funny thing was, I, you know, at MIT, I actually lived in a room in a dorm that looked out onto the athletic fields. And what I remember seeing, because I was up late studying also, and, and I, I actually did this also, we didn't just have feeding periods. Sure, there was lots of, lots of takeout being brought in and all that kind of stuff. But there would also, at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, you could look outside and to the track and you would see people running. So they were looking for another way to, to activate their parasympathetic nervous system. You know, yes, there's the brain gut axis. So yes, you can activate the vagus nerve by eating. <laughs> you can try to relax yourself by doing that, but you can also relax yourself by going out and exercising. And I would say to people, you know, there's nothing more stress relieving than good comfort food. We've talked about that in the past too, comfort food, but also exercise. Exercise is so important. I've had some, some challenging times in my life, um, some emotionally stressful times. And what I've tried to do is to use that nervous energy, if you will, that stress in a positive way and um, I've had a couple of times in my life where I've dropped a significant amount of weight on purpose. You know, I, I've got a little overweight and I wanted to drop it. And I found that it was always around times that were exceedingly stressful mm -hmm. that I actually lost the weight. I went out because I used exercise as a way to work off my, my stress and my, my issues. You know, I, I encourage anybody who's, who's in a stressful situation, finds himself binge eating or otherwise, consider going out and exercising, it will give you the same comfort level that you're looking for because it activates that same nerve that is the brain gut axis. It's your vagus nerve. It's your parasympathetic nerve. It will do such wonderful things for you. There's really nothing that you can't overcome health-wise, emotionally, even, even intellectually. It will enhance your ability to problem solve, go out, walk, run, exercise, swim, bike, anything, get out. And if you can do it with other people, that social interaction also helps to reduce inflammation. I mean, in elderly people, they find that inflammation levels are lower in elderly people who are still with their mate, married in a social circle that still get out and talk. It's that isolation that comes when you lose your mate, or you're no longer physically able to interact, that is damaging. And it actually leads you to, you know, all sorts of chronic ailments getting worse and, and ultimately succumbing and taking your life. I will second that with uh, a little story from myself. So at, at my worst, I weighed 250 pounds. 
my blood pressure was high. I was borderline diabetic. This was in my 20s. And in addition to changing my dietary strategy into eating more of a paleolithic style diet where it was lower carbs, higher in nutrient dense foods, a lot more salads, a lot more good quality fats, a lot more good, really high quality protein. In addition to that, the exercise piece really did come in very, very handy, very important. I started playing squash three times a week with a couple of my really good friends and we would push each other and and really challenge each other for a few hours and literally would come out of there dripping, sweating because we were working off a lot of this excess stored energy. That's what a lot of this fat is, just an FYI. That excess fat is stored energy that you just have not unlocked the use of yet or, or that your patient has yet to unlock the use of. And that was a big piece of the puzzle for me. Getting that activity level up promoted better eating, promoted uh, increased satiety because the GLP-1 uh, signaling was increased and I didn't overeat. I didn't eat nearly as much. And my use of stored energy, glycogen and uh, adipose uh, cells containing the the uh, fats, fat free, uh, the fatty acids that I could use as well, started to be used much more effectively. Muscle cells are the most important cells when it comes to the use of insulin. Insulin resistance primarily happens in the larger muscle groups. If you do not use those large muscle groups, they don't need as much energy. They don't need as much glucose. And so they start to become insulin resistant and they will stop putting those insulin receptors on the cell surface and they will stop answering the doorbell. And what exercise does is it promotes the burning of the glucose that's present within the cell and says, hey, we need more. We need more. And muscles are the most effective cell, most efficient cell in using carbohydrates and fats when it comes to actually burning that energy and actually using it effectively. And so the key to insulin resistance and overcoming insulin resistance by a long shot, 100% is the use of muscles more effectively, rhythmically and, and regularly. Yeah, no question. And I, I just, you know, when we talk about metabolic disease, everybody immediately jumps to obesity and type two diabetes um, and we've spent most of our time talking about that. There are other conditions like atherosclerosis and hypertension that benefit equally from exercise. You want to bring down your blood pressure. You know, you, you want to make certain your arteries are clear, eat well and run. But I, I, the other thing I want to say to people who are maybe at that stage where they've, they've stored a lot of energy, they've stored a, a lot of excess energy and, and have a few pounds on them that they want to lose. Stop thinking about weight loss as a painful thing. Stop thinking about weight loss as something where you're going to go hungry and you're not going to be happy with. All you have to do, and I, I want to make, I can't tell you how much better you will feel. So I, I want to change, I want to flip the script. I, I actually got to the point when I, when I lost a, a bunch of weight and got myself in fantastic shape, I actually did run a marathon. I was in really good shape. I could run 10 miles. And if somebody said, run another 10 miles, I'd go do it. I mean, it was, I felt great. I can tell you, I got to the point where I th was thinking to myself, when I saw somebody who was overweight, I would say to them, say to myself, boy, I wish I could take their weight and lose that weight too. It was, it literally was like, 
I was looking for more to do. It was so gratifying to have done it. It was such a sense of accomplishment to have achieved it that I would, I, I enjoyed it so much. It was almost like, let's do it again. And so eat right and exercise. Eating right doesn't mean eating less. It means eating right. Again, I didn't say eat less. I said eat right. Eat right, eat more fats and more protein, fewer carbohydrates, less sugar, and get out and exercise and, and stay hydrated. You know, one of the things, and this is just a brief little you know, point, people eat because they're thirsty. We're chronically dehydrated. And as a result, we are eating to satisfy our thirst, not our hunger. So stay hydrated, eat good fats, eat good protein, minimize the carbohydrates and exercise. And within no time at all, that exercise will become so effective because you'll be insulin, you won't be insulin resistant, you'll be insulin sensitive. Your muscle cells will burn off that fat, burn off that, that excess energy. Your liver will be in better shape. You'll feel better emotionally. And it's, it's literally, it's something that you can look back on and say, hey, I've done something that most people can't do. I've done something that most people won't do. I've done something that was really good for me and I feel great having done it. I can attest to that 100%. I think it's a perfect point for us to end today's discussion on. And uh, yes, we did go a little over our normal time today, but that is absolutely fine. I'm, I think this is one of our most important discussions that we've had to date, simply because of the number of people that are dealing with these types of conditions. And when, when somebody puts their mind to it, the capability to make a change here is beyond any other condition that you could ever imagine. This is a, a condition that we create and it's a condition that we can change very, very easily. And so metabolic disease is something that can be addressed uh, when you take full responsibility, take full control of what you're experiencing, the stressors in your life, and you start to do some work to help engage the systems that allow for that rest, digest, and recovery to occur and the balance of good positive stress in your life. This is huge. I, I think this is a perfect place to end. So uh, I, I hope you learned something here. I hope you gained some wonderful knowledge and you're able to implement this either with yourself or with your patients or family members, anybody who needs to hear this. Please share this episode with anybody who you feel needs to hear this information, knows that they can uh, benefit in their health and in their longevity from hearing this. All right. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next one. It's going to be pretty good. Mm -hmm.